are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Armin Navabi. And Armin, I believe you're coming to us from Vancouver, is that correct? Yes, Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I, as usual, am coming to you from Buenos Aires. Armin is the founder of Atheist Republic, which is, I believe, the largest online group for atheist, international atheist group online. Online and offline. Online and offline. And he is the co-host of his own podcast, The Secular Jihadists, which is a podcast on ex-Muslim and religious and atheist-related themes, and the author of the best-selling book, Why There Is No God. Welcome, Armin. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Armin, I would like to focus tonight on Iran and all things Iranian. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about the pro- current anti-government protests in Iran mm-hmm. and about theocracy in Iran and the the prospects for for changing the theocrat for getting rid of the theocratic regime. I was going to say changing the regime, but that makes it sound like a military intervention, and that's not my aim. But I wanted to begin by talking to you a little bit about your upbringing and some of the changes you might have seen in Iran when you were growing up or have heard about from your parents. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, of course, in Pakistan. My parents left Pakistan uh, because of increasing Islamization under General Zia after the military coup in 1977. So we do, I think, have a few parallels here. And of course, also, I consider myself a sort of honorary Iranian because I'm Indian Parsi. So my Mm. ancestors were from Iran. Right. So I I have an irrational but deep and special love for Iranians. So I'm sending you that love in a big wave <laughs> right now over the air. <laughs> I don't know if you will still love me after I, after what I have to say about Zoroastrianism. <laughs> so let's, let's wait until the end of this show before you decide if you still want to send me love. But okay, but I'll take it for now. Okay, I feel it should be unconditional. So. Okay, okay, okay. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> can't can't be taken back. Okay, okay. <laughs> could be mixed Sounds- with other feelings, but it cannot be re- retracted. <laughs> um, Sounds good. Okay. So, um, tell me about your your early life growing up in Iran, and whether you you saw some changes to the country, and and also whether there were changes that you heard about from your parents. So I've, I I saw in your pin tweet on Twitter is two pictures of your mother, who is really an exceptionally beautiful woman, or is an exceptionally beautiful woman in... Was. Was, I'm sorry. Um, but yes. in uh, first, before and after the Islamic Revolution, so first in 
nurse's uh, cap and outfit and then in hijab. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about um, your upbringing in Iran and changes that you noticed and what it was like growing up as as a Muslim in, in Iran. Well, I mean, the amount of changes that um, me and my parents experienced are so dramatic that I don't even know which ones to pick right now. And uh, one example I can give you uh, now that you mentioned the hijab uh, to show you how extreme the example is, is that Iran within one generation, within like there are people that lived to experience both of these, went from a country that the only country in the world where hijab in public was illegal, that was the situation of Iran at some point, to a country, to the only country in the world where hijab was mandatory for everyone, including foreigners and non-Muslims, right? So mm. within one generation, going from the only country in the world where hijab is illegal and banned to the only country in the world where hijab is mandatory for everyone, including foreigners. That's a pretty extreme change, right? So there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things that change, obviously. But that's just one example, just just to show you. But I know my, um, my personal experiences are, are a lot. Just to give you some context, I... My uh, upbringing was in a more liberal part of the society, among a more liberal community with, with parents and families that not only were not practicing uh, Islam, they were only Muslim by name, but also among a community of people that are very, very anti-government, uh, gov- you know, anti-religious mullahs. Uh, even, you know, when they say anti-religious authority, that doesn't mean they don't call themselves Muslims. They still call themselves Muslims, but there's, but they're very sensitive to anything Islamic uh, coming from the government. And, you know, so that was my upbringing. A lot of people that I uh, socialized with were more nationalist than religious, right? And a lot of nationalist types in Iran see religion, Islam as a, as a counter to that, as an enemy of nationalism in Iran. They think like uh, Islam is ru- ruined the superior Iranian culture, which we can get into that in a little more detail. But that was my upbringing, right? Like that was the people that I used to be surrounded by. So it was weird when I actually turned religious, when I was a teenager, right? Mm. And I turned very religious when I was a teenager and it would really annoyed my parents, uh, especially because uh, I wasn't just religious. I was trying to get them to become, to take Islam more seriously. Like they didn't pray. They never fasted. They never, uh, my dad, you know, they drank alcohol so, and I thought they're going to go to hell. So I tried to save them many times and they found it very annoying. In fact, um, when I eventually became an atheist, I was still in Iran when I became an atheist and I told my parents that I'm an atheist. Their first reaction was, oh, thank God. Uh, because they thought that, <laughs> they thought that, yeah, they, they thought like this religion, we like, they thought that they had the liberal upbringing for me, but now they were cursed by this religious police in their own household. So they were very relieved when I became an atheist. But then, then they changed their mind about how good of a news this is because they realized that I can't, just like when I was religious and I couldn't shut up about it, uh, when I was an atheist, I could, I could also not shut up about it, right? 
And that was very dangerous to to talk about your atheism so you know to so many people in a country like Iran, right? So they were very happy when I decided to leave Iran and go to Canada. I don't know if this is relevant to your podcast or not, but I could tell you the process of me becoming very religious and what led me to yes, start. Yes, please, please do. I'm interested oh. to hear. And, and what's relevant to my podcast is whatever I decide is relevant. <laughs> so, okay. okay. <laughs> I am, the, good, I am the dictator of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, you know, when I, when I was, before even going to elementary school, when I, learn about the hell i start, i was you know very scared about the idea of burning you know and you know as a kid learning about that i remember that it is really uh, consumed my mind i don't know i i still don't understand why the other kids were not as scared as i was as if it was but i was scared and i remember even my aunt funding you know, she used to live with us because she couldn't afford her own place. But she found out that I was crying and she asked me why I'm crying about it. I'm like, I'm, I'm scared of going to hell. And she told me that, don't worry, our men, only the rapists and the murderers and all the worst people. That's where the, the uh, hell is for you. Most people, you know, won't go to hell. Don't, you know. God is loving. Of course, he's not going to send you to hell. And I was like, that calmed me down until I went to school. And they told us, that's wrong. Most people are going to go to hell. <laughs> um, that they, in school, I learned that my, my aunt was bullshitting me. And the idea is that most Muslims also go to hell. Uh, every sin that you have committed, you have to pay for. Uh, the only difference is that non-Muslims go to hell forever. Muslims just go to hell for a very long time to pay for every sin, and then eventually they might go to heaven. But my parents probably would never go to heaven because they don't pray, they drink alcohol, they didn't fast. You know, they they tell us so many stories about what happens in hell. You know, every debt that you owe, any 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 anything that you did wrong, even the slightest, will become the heat of that sin. Will become the heat of a thousand sun and just stay with you for thousands of thousands of years. Uh, and then eventually after, you know, thousands of years, you will go to, you know, they kept on coming up with such ridiculous exaggerations of how much the heat is. But yeah, I, I actually remember um, lighting a match and putting it on my skin when I was a kid, just to see how much it hurts. And then I just imagined that all over my body for five minutes. And then I imagined it for like years, then for 10 years, I was like, there's no, there is no way anybody could survive this. Right. And, or, or tolerate this. Right. Mm. So, but, but then, but then I found a loophole in the system. What I, what they were telling us in school uh, was that if you, so, you know how in Christianity, by the way, I didn't know about this about Christianity until later, but I, compare, I I give this as an example to people just so that they could um, understand it better. You know how in Christianity you have the original sin? Yes. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody is born with sin, right? Yes. In Islam, they don't have that. In Islam, they teach you that, you know, it's ridiculous for a child to be responsible for any sins, right? You're, you know, so... A child is pure. A child is sinless. You have no sin. You're masum, which means pure and sinless, until you hit the age of reason. Because only after the age of reason can you be held accountable for your actions. Mm, right? Mm. 
So there is no sin for children in Islam. And they say, they, they, they told us in school, and again, a lot of Muslims, when they say that this to them, they say like, oh, this is not how we, how we were, uh, what, what we were told. Well, yeah, the ages are sometimes different, and sometimes the, there is no specific age either but for, for some other Muslims. But the, the concept is the same thing. Age, you have to hit the age of reason before you're uh, you're responsible for your sins. But in the way it was, we were told in our school uh, is that that age age of reason for girls is nine, uh, for boys is fifteen. Mm. And so that's way too way I, too so, early. So, it should be more like thirty five. <laughs> <laughs> well, later on, I realized that those are the ages of marriage. That's why they picked right. those ages. Yeah. Right, that I, I didn't know why nine and fifteen at that time, but later that somebody pointed that to me, which was oh, okay, now now it makes more sense. So, um, but here's the thing, okay, okay, so suicide is a sin in Islam, yes, right? but but there is no sin before the age of reason. Mm-hmm. So I put two and two together, and I thought, so wait, if I commit suicide before age fifteen. The only place I could end up in is heaven because I have no sins. So, you know, they tell you they have two angels, one uh, on your each one of your shoulders. There's one on your right shoulder and one on your left shoulder. And the, the one on your right shoulder is writing down all your good deeds. And the one on your left is writing down all your sins. Mm. Right. But before age 15, their sheets are completely white. It's empty. Right. So if I just die before age 15, I will go to heaven. Yes, suicide is a sin, but it can't be a sin if I do it before age 15. They told me there is no sin before age 15, right? So I thought, why would I, why would I not just kill myself and make sure that I go to heaven? Why would I stick around and see if I'm going to end up being a good person or not, right? I went and uh, checked this with a religious teacher and just to make sure that I'm getting my math right and if, this is, uh, if I actually found a loophole or not. And I asked him, why wouldn't I just kill myself? I get guaranteed heaven. And he said, okay, if you, if, you know, the reason why you wouldn't do it, because you will get the lowest part of heaven. The, apparently, le- heaven have different layers, and the VIP part is at the very top, where that's where Muhammad is, and that's for martyrs, mm-hmm. right? But if you, do- if you go to heaven just because you died as a child, you get the lowest part, right? Mm-hmm. He said, why wouldn't you just stick around and earn heaven so you get a better part of heaven, right? <laughs> and I... That's can, so crazy. Can, can, I, can I swear yes, on the show? Yes, please. You can fucking okay. square, swear okay. as much as you like. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, I, I thought to myself, I don't give a fuck which part of heaven I end up in. I just don't want to go to hell. I just don't want to burn. I th- I thought I'll take a parking lot for eternity as long as it guarantees that I'm not going to end up burning for any period of time. So I ju- so I jumped out of the window of my school. Uh, I broke both my legs. I broke my left arm. I fractured my back. I, I was in a wheelchair for and my bed for around seven months. I missed one year of school. And the only reason why I never tried it again was because what I saw it did to my parents. I saw my dad cry for the first time. Uh, I didn't know my dad was capable of crying. I saw my mom come to the hospital and she just collapsed on the ground. And I felt really bad what I did to them. So I didn't try it again. 
Um, but honestly, if I saw myself, to, if I saw what I would have become, which is a heathen, um, I would have tried it another million times just to be, just to avoid what I became today, right? Gosh. So. What a story. Yeah. So, but so eventually, I hit age fifteen, and I said, and I thought, like, okay, I'm stuck in this game. I I have to play this game. With the consequences of losing this game is huge so i have to win it and i thought like you know this can't be that difficult i could do this you know i i never i honestly you know a lot of people think what i did is crazy but if i if you if my if the premises of what they told us is was true to this day i still think my conclusion was solid like i keep telling like people like is it wasn't my lot my logic was not flawed the premises were, were flawed. Mm. Like with those premises, my conclusion is, I, even as an atheist, I would say today that my conclusion was solid. And I still, I could, when I did that, I could not understand why other people are not doing this because it seems like an easy option to go to heaven. And I couldn't understand why anybody would stick around just to risk burning in hell. Like it would seem like the most idiotic gamble of all time. Mm. So I still... A lot of Muslims tell me today, like, no, I mean, most Muslims don't jump out of windows. You're just crazy. And I'm like, um, yeah, but my conclusion is solid if the premises are true. Like, can you tell me where I got, where is my, where is the flaw in the logic of me? Like, you know, I still defend that today. It's just they fed me false premises. That's the, pro- you know, and that's a, that's the problem with uh, belief, um, re- you know, religious beliefs. It's not the, con- people are so obsessed with the wrong conclusions, right? People like, how could you defend slavery or wife beating or terrorist attack? And look at these other Muslims. They are peaceful and moderate. And I'm like, yeah, but the problem is given the premises, those crazy, those crazy conclusions make sense. The, the premises are the, the foundation is, is, uh, is rotten. Not the, not those conclusions. Don't go after the conclusions. Go after the very foundation. Mm. Anyways, mm. I'm getting off track. Yeah, I, I mean, you are taking the religion seriously in a way that most other people aren't. Or, you know, right. they they may even think they're taking it seriously, but of course some doubt still remains in their minds. And that's why they're upset, for example, when people die, even good people who they believe have gone to heaven, because some part of them still feels that they're they're not certain that there really is a heaven up there. And that's also why most people don't become suicide bombers or in York and don't try to commit suicide before age 15 or whatever it might be, because the right. doubt and, remains. Know, yeah. um, when you lose that doubt, that's when the, that's when the potential mm. for craziness and harm uh, seeps in. It's, it's, it's a mixture of doubt and apathy. Mm. Like most Muslims are just like most people, don't really think about these things, you know, like the average Muslims is thinking about if, you know, what, what to have for dinner, whether to go to that party or not, whether the couches match the curtains, what, what, the, uh, how did their son get such a low grade in their last exam? This is, you know, this is what consumes their mind. You know, they're not going around thinking, if their if their actions are matching their Islamic philosophy, you know they're not. That's not what they're thinking about most of the time, mm. right? Mm. So it's it's the ones that take it. The ones that do take it seriously, 
a, a little bit of a, like even a 1% doubt is enough to stop them from taking action on, on such ridiculous beliefs, right? Yes. So, but, but most people don't, most Muslims, just like most people, don't even get to the point of pointing taking it seriously because they are they're worrying about other things mm, right mm. but but that doesn't mean that uh, islam is not a problem because the problem with all the majority of muslims that don't take islam seriously is that they are their numbers are giving authority and legitimacy for an ideology that could be used for you know creating a lot of chaos and misery mm. Right. So even though they, you know, I mean, they are responsible, but they're not like, I don't, I'm not, they're unknowing, doing this unknowingly. So I'm not suggesting that we should hate them for it. Right. Because they're not doing this on purpose. Most people don't want to be supporting slavery or wife beating. They don't think they're doing that. But so if they're doing that, I'm not suggesting that we should be angry with them. Yes. Right. They're just doing it unknowingly. Yeah. Right. Anyways. So at age 15, I decided to be a good Muslim. I was like, this can't be that hard. Just don't miss your prayer. Fast during Ramadan. Be, you know, don't commit any sins and you're good, right? I could do this. I could do this, all right? Let's do this. The problem is that age 15 is also the, around the same age that you start noticing that you're attracted to girls if you're straight mm-hmm. at least, right? And then you realize that, okay, this is a lot more difficult than I thought it was because Allah is not just a tyrant of your actions. He's also a tyrant of your thoughts, Mm. right? So you could just think the wrong thing and you already committed a sin, even if you didn't do anything. So, you know, you have to be able to control your thoughts as as well. As, As a teenage boy, you keep failing and you feel you keep thinking how disgusting you are and you keep apologizing to god and you feel shameful that the creator of the whole universe can see how how disgusting and how pathetic and how uh you know and and you keep apologizing you like how you keep thinking lower and lower of yourself that uh, that you know a god that has given you so much and he loves you so much has is asking for so little and you are so disgusting that you can't you can't even control your your dirty dirty thoughts. Like how 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 you know how pathetic is this? How you know you feel ashamed of of yourself, and you keep apologizing. And you say never again, but again, you're going through your teenage life, and it happens again, and you have to you know. And the problem is that what and looking back at it now, I I think that you know at least I was. Uh, straight and you think like you know one day I'll get married and you know you don't have to be ashamed of your thoughts anymore Mm, but imagine mm. if I was gay right imagine how disgusted and shameful would you be of yourself if you were gay because first of all you would be having more disgusting thoughts because they're more shameful and you also would know that this is your hell forever you you will never this is not something that you will be getting out of you know, I mean, this the, when people talk about the cost of religion, they always think like suicide bombers, wars and stuff. I, I think the cost of religion when it comes to the, you know, the psychological trauma, the amount of people that it separates, the families that it ruins, uh, the economical costs to, to a country if the, if, if, the, if the governing decisions are made 
by any influence of religion, the amount of economical cost that is having on a on a whole population. If you add all of these costs together, it 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 adds up to to you know much more than wars and terrorist attacks. Not that they are not important; they are. But I think like most of the costs from religion is usually not not very newsworthy, not very interesting. It doesn't get into the headlines, but if you add up all the misery that it causes in other ways, I think it's a lot more than just what gets into the headline news. Anyways, so one thing that I couldn't understand still, even as, a, as when I was being very religious, was how is it that my parents are going to go to hell? And not only that, how is it that all these foreigners are going to go f- to hell for eternity? Right. Like I, everybody in, in my social life was obsessed with Hollywood movies, with soccer. My dad watched BBC News every night. And I always find that like all these people are going to go to hell forever. They're not, these are the Hollywood actors. They're not Muslim. These soccer players, they're not Muslim. The, the BBC reporter is not Muslim. Why is nobody concerned about these people? Right. Like, why is nobody thinking like these poor people like we're these poor people are going to one day be screaming in pain and it's it's never going to stop. And I couldn't understand that. Why is, why, how is this fair? One thing I did is I went to the library. I picked a book about the history of religion just to see what other religions are about. Maybe like, maybe they're kind of like Islam light, you know, like a different version of Islam. And that's why they're not going to go to hell. But then I studied the history of religion and I kind of saw that, you know, it talked about cavemen and how they put like decorated the graves and put gifts for the, you know, it, and then it went to ancient Egypt and every. But the more I, the more I started looking into it, the more it seemed like to me that this all seems like made up, right? Uh, it seemed like it's a man-made invention. The more I studied the history of religion, and I at at some point I asked myself, like, wait a minute. What if my religion is made up? <laughs> like I asked myself, like when at one point did I just accept this as fact? Like how is it that I never even questioned this? And I kind of I felt very arrogant because I didn't know any other atheists. Like it, it's not like you know I I'm, I see a lot of atheists that became atheists after watching. Uh, Carl Sagan or people that knew read Richard Dawkins books and stuff like that. I didn't know any of these people. I just studied the history of religion. So I thought like, if I'm saying that this looks like a conspiracy, you know, that it's a con, like it's all made up. Am I, am I claiming that I'm, I figured out something that nobody else that I know of have discovered. Like I felt like, Maybe I'm the crazy one here. Maybe, like, I kept on getting more and more uh, convinced that this is man-made. But but I also felt very arrogant because I felt like I was claiming to myself that I have discovered this lie that nobody, all these p- smart, educated people around me have not figured out. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it out. So I, I made it an online community just to see if other people there's anybody else like there that that agrees with me and you know at, at first it was just for iranian people and as soon as i made it like hundreds of people joined and i'm like wow we're like there's there's a lot of us out there that don't believe this right so it was very i thought like maybe i'm not crazy 
But that's where that's eventually where Atheist Republic came from, uh, which eventually turned into the world's largest community of atheists. Yes. And I should mention, actually, that I had your co-host on the Secular Jihadists, Ali Rizvi, right. was also on this podcast. Podcast, that's the yeah, Secular Jihadists. Yes. yes. So I interviewed Ali in a previous episode with Helen Pluckrose oh, um, at that nice. time. So everybody can go back and f- also find, after you finish listening to this, if you want more, you can listen to Ali's interview too. He was wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I think this might be a good place, this number of atheists whom you found within Iran might be a good place to move on to the opposition to the current theocratic regime in Iran. Mm. And first of all, so I am, of course, most aware of the opposition to the regime, which is atheists and secularists opposing theocracy, because I I follow you on Twitter. So I have seen a lot of videos that you have posted of, for example, people in Iran mm. burning copies of the Quran as in protest. And I've, I also follow Masi Alinejad, mm-hmm. who's the author of The Wind in My Hair, who is a campaigner against coerced hijab. And I follow the White Wednesdays and My Stealthy Freedom and My Camera is My Weapon campaigns, which are women defying the government by going out in public without hijab and Mm. Uh, when they are harassed, they are filming the harassment and posting it on Twitter, or people are posting it on Twitter for them, and and also protesting in other ways, such as uh, singing and dancing in public, which is forbidden by the regime. But I know that that's just one strand of the opposition. Could you unpick for me what the different groups are opposing the government? And yeah, could you just... Uh, which which one was the last one that you mentioned? Singing okay. and dancing in public. Right. So, and posting okay, videos so, onto, the, onto Twitter or having videos right. posted on Twitter. How much do, how much does your audience know about this? Because I could there's I could give you some information like get into more if if people know the basics I could give I could discuss some information that I've not seen in other, uh, discussed in other places in on English speaking platforms. I would say start with the basics and then add that information as necessary so people have some context. Right. Okay. So a simplified version of the two main groups, which is, you know, it's very simplified, right? Okay. Is that you have the, the, the two main ideological forces, at least used to be, the, the Islamic, you know, the religious people. And this was the stereotype view of people that the, the more religious you were, the more pro-government you were. Uh, and the less religious, more nationalist, more nationalist type you were, the more anti-government you were, right? And this has this is actually now more complicated than what I'm making it sound like. But this was the this was how it looked like before, and now it's not so not, now it's not so simple. And it, it never used to be this simple. But I'm just going to give you the stereotypical version of it, and then maybe we could get into more detail, right? So you had the people that were religious and they were pro-government, but then the the idea was that the, you have other people that were more, that thought that this Islamic Republic ruined Iran, mm. right? The Islamic, the Islamic Revolution ruined Iran. And you have different degrees of 
anti-religious views in that. You have people in there that think that, yes, they're Muslim, but not, but this is nonsense. But you also have a lot of people that hate Islam with a passion in Iran. And among these people, you have people that think that these are nationalists, these are ethno-nationalists, right? So they think that Iran's belongs to the Aryan race. Iran means the land of the Aryans, right? My name, Armin, uh, means uh, the defender of the guardian of the Aryan land. Mm -hmm. And they think that uh, the, the Islamic religion is for the inferior Arab race. Mm. And it does not belong in Iran. They think that these are some backward barbaric people that came and destroyed uh, twice, one one they did it once in the fourteen hundred years ago with the Omar inva uh, invading Iran and turning it into an Islamic country, uh, but then Khomeini came and made it into an Islamic theocracy, and whoever brings Islam to Iran, whoever endorses Islam in Iran, is a traitor because this is a foreign intervention. This is a foreign ideology. It's not Iran, Iranian ideology. They think Zoroastrianism is the religion of Iran, uh, and a race, a race as superior as the Aryan race, only could only be it deserves a superior religion, uh, like the Zoroastrian religion, and you know, and a religion as barbaric as Islam is only for desert-dwelling Arabs, and they call them, you know. Um, alligator eaters as an insult. I don't know why that became a common insult, but that's what they say to them. Right? Mm. So, so these are crazy people. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes. And they are, and they are most, they're very common. Mm. Mm. This is a very common view. Mm. Uh, this is why it is being a humanist atheist activist in Iran is not a very rewarding uh, thing because you find a lot of people coming to you and being so happy that you're anti-Islam. And then as soon as they, they see, they, for example, for, for, a very, for a long time, I wasn't very public about who started Atheist Republic because I was very afraid of, you know, the consequences. But at some point I decided to come to the public. And when I did, I had a lot of Iranians messaging me like, oh, I can't believe the founder of Atheist Republic is a fellow um, Aryan, I'm so proud of you. These, you know, the we will destroy these fucking Arabs one day. And I was like, okay, okay, no, chill, chill. <laughs> this is not what um, <laughs> this is we. This is not what I'm about. I work with a lot of Arab atheists. This is this is not a move we're making taking against um, uh, Arabs at all. In fact, we're united again with Arabs against Islam uh, in our activism. And they, a lot of times, many of them get disappointed and leave. But we do, we do have a lot of humanist um, atheists in Iran as well that join us, and they're very happy to see our form of activism. If, but it, but the most common anti-Islamic force uh, in Iran, the most pa uh, powerful one, is this ethno-nationalist type. Mm. Right? Yeah, I I don't support that at all. I should say that quite clearly. Um, I mean, I think that it's. I love the idea of people ret uh, kind of rediscovering Zoroastrianism. I know you're not as keen on that, but I <laughs> I love the idea of that. And I'm very happy to see people in 
Iran doing Naujad and returning to fire temples and reviving these old and ancient traditions. But I do not think religion and government can mix at all. And I definitely don't think that religion can be uh, a is any kind of crutch or excuse for some sort of ethno-nationalism or, uh, you know, sort of Zoroastrian supremacy. That just makes no sense to me. When Zoroastrianism was the state religion in Persia, which was obviously a very long time ago, but mm. at that time, the Zoroastrian priests would apostates and dissenters, um, heretics, were flayed alive. You know, it yes. was not. That's where Islam it got it, it was from. not a pleasant regime. This is. No. I mean, I am very attached to the the sense of a very long and deep history in Zoroastrianism, but I, but you know, a lot of that history is also very ugly, and theocracy is almost always ugly. Religion should not should not mix with state power and be enforced in that way, and I should definitely not be used as a way to create first and second-hand citizens. This is what we see happening in India with Hindu nationalists too. I was actually going to get to that uh, Hindu nationalism. Yeah. Sure. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump the gun there. Uh, then I, sh- if, if I should have you on our podcast because I want to learn more about your experience with Zoroastrianism at some point. But that's that's so interesting that you, uh, that you mentioned Hindu nationalism um, because I, I compare the rise of Zoroastrianism in Iran with the rise of Hindu nationalism and the rise of also um, ethno-nationalists in Europe using Viking religion, right? Going back to Viking symbols and ideology. Mm. Uh, a similarity between that and the people in ethno-nationalists in Iran that use Zoroastrianism is that the Zoroastrians in Iran, some of them are annoyed by this. They, they don't want converts to Zoroastrianism. They don't think, they, they think these people have a political agenda and <laughs> like, they're like, just go away. <laughs> You're not born as Zoroastrian, just get out of here, right? Yeah. Uh, and I know a lot of pagans in Europe are annoyed that the white nationalists are adapting their symbols <laughs> and they're like they're, they're using their all their um, names and stuff and they don't they don't want their pagan religion to be mixed with uh, ethno-nationalism in india also a lot of hands but the interesting thing about these religions is that you know before christianity and islam um, religions used to be ethnic mm, right mm, yeah you know, you had the Persians with their religion, you had the Greeks with their religion, the Jews were for ethnic Jews, and Romans had their religion, and every every race had its own religion, right? People just understood that. And uh, the first uh, truly global religions were uh, Christianity and Islam that were supposed to be for all races, right? Mm-hmm. Judaism was the first religion that got separated for, from a certain geographical point, so it became semi-global. Because once they lost their land, it became a global religion in the sense that it wasn't connected to a certain land anymore. It could be their God could be anywhere. Uh, but it was still tied to a certain group of people. Right. Christianity was the first religion that got separated from both land and ethnicity when the Romans started becoming Christian. Right? Mm, so it wasn't mm. for Jews anymore. It was for, you know, and Islam basically followed, um, followed Christianity. But 
you know, so so these kind of ethnic religions are a very powerful way to for ethno-nationalists, right? So you use ancient ideas, ancient religions as a way to enforce the idea that this land is for a certain group of people and only for a certain group of people. Yes, right? yes. And of course, you know, I think one of the reasons why Zoroastrianism became a less harmful force is because the Parsis left Iran to India, uh, where we were living, where my father's ancestors were living in the we. I mean, this is not very meaningful, but, you know, where my father's ancestors were living in a diaspora as a tiny Mm. minority. And that is where the Parsis as a group uh, were shone. And I I think that there is muscular assertion of identity when you are a majority is a really dangerous and and sort of tasteless. I know that may seem like an odd word, but it's it's just smacks of bullying. And it's also it's really it's a difficult balancing line for for me in particular because my Parsi identity is very important to me. Zoroastrianism is one of the last religions which you cannot usually convert to, although many people think that um, Iranians who become Zoroastrian are not converting, quote-unquote, because they're from the homeland. (laughs) They're sort of ancestrally born to be Zoroastrian. Um, I would actually be fine with people being able to convert. I like the idea of an unbroken historical line, but at the same time, I don't like this idea of blood and soil of people owning a certain tract of land or being sort of born to be the masters. And that kind of thinking always leads to always leads to really, really terrible results. That is the kind of thinking that created ethno-nationalism in Sri Lanka and Buddhism is the most non-violent of religions. There's not a not a single teaching that suggests violence. I think the only one is the... Um, Buddhist? In Buddhism. I think the only violent thing in yeah. Buddhism is that you're taught that if you meet the Buddha on the road, you should kill him. Because Buddhism is about non-attachment and the Buddha is a figure of attachment. So yeah, but it's still misog- it's still a misogynist religion. It's still, it's still anti pleasure, anti fun. Right, anti- right. So there may be other anti thinking, anti logic. There are a lot yeah. of other kind of elements, but nevertheless, it became hijacked for violent purposes because of this link with a blood and soil nationalism that the Buddhists are the inheritors of Sri Lanka. So I I find this a very un really, really distasteful and unpleasant. This idea of being the kind of natural inheritors of some area, some region, some country, I find that nonsensical and pernicious. Right, but but, um, these pre-Abrahamic religions are by nature ethno-nationalists. Right, yeah. I mean, they Mm -hmm. are ethno-nationalists. Zoroastrianism is an ethno-national, does promote ethno-nationalism. Um, so they, they're not wrong about that. So this is why I'm, you know, well, you know, I'm against religion as a whole. Yes, though, yeah. so. And I, and, and I, and I do think the reason why Zoroastrianism is not harmful today is because it was defeated <laughs> by the Arab, by, by the Muslims. Right. I think if it wasn't defeated, it would still be 
a problematic religion, just like any other religion. Um, yeah, the Zoroastrian state was a horrible, horrible state. I would not, right. you know, I don't see that as some kind of golden age at all. Um, right. I mean, the, the whole idea of it, um, of an afterlife, came from Zoroastrianism, right? Um, the idea of killing apostates came from Zoroastrianism. You know, that's where Islam got it from. By the way, hijab came from Zoroastrianism. Mm. Well, we still cover our heads, both men and women, for, at the Agyari, yeah. although not at other times. It's yeah. only for a prayer that you cover your heads. Yeah. But but the idea I heard, I heard, I mean, I'm not sure how accurate this is. I heard it from at least one scholar. Uh, take it with a grain of salt because other scholars might disagree. But that whole idea of covering your hair came from, I know Muslims took it to a different level, but that's where, where it came from originally. Yes, definitely. You have to, if you go to um, the Agyari, the Fire Temple, or also to other places like Holy Wells and things like that, you have to cover your hair, right. uh, but men as well. Right. Women usually wear a headscarf um, and men wear a little velvet cap thing, but you can, right. but you the, can choose to wear a velvet cap as a woman as well. A lot of the older women wear the, right. wear a velvet cap. And the purpose is for for that is different than it is in Islam. The purpose for that is for it not letting dead things hit the ground. Yes, it's it's hygiene. The religion is very Zoroastrianism is a very OCD religion um, when it comes to it's hygiene. It's not hygiene. It's, well, it's symbolic. It, it's, it's symbolic it, kind of hygiene. Yes. Yeah, but in a very su uh, superstitious kind yes, of way. Of it's not like it's it, it 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 because a lot of Zoroastrians try to uh, sell me the idea like, look, it's it's pro look, Zoroastrianism is pro being clean. Like, yeah, no, it's pro not letting dead things touch the ground. That's a very different thing than clean. Like your hair not falling because the ground apparently, you know, are dead things shouldn't like even your hair shouldn't fall on the ground, which is weird, and that's why you get mm, people. Uh, vultures eating on dead people when they, you know, that's how you they don't burn your dead bodies they don't uh, bury them under the ground, they feed them to vultures because the body is dead and the vultures take them into um, the sky yes, right? it's, so, it's, it's symbolic, it's completely symbolic, I mean, when yeah. you go to the I have been to the Dungarwadi in Bombay where they have the Towers of Silence and do the burials and I've been to a couple of Zoroastrian funerals and uh -huh. uh, you saw the vultures? Um, so there are very few vultures are now endangered in India because of mm. diclofenac, very popular painkiller, which is deadly poisonous to vultures. And um, oh. there are some breeding programs. They've not been terribly successful. So now it's it's become rather more gruesome. So there are some vultures, and I did see a flock of them, you don't actually see the eating of the bodies. So you don't go into the tower. You process mm. up the hill, uh, up to a kind of clearing, which is near the Towers of Silence, but only the priests go into the tower, the special caste of priests who are responsible for um, burying the dead. It's a specific right. um, type of priesthood, but you don't actually see it. I did see right. vultures at the Dungarwadi, but there are far fewer. So now they're using solar panels to desiccate the corpses. The vultures are eating some bits and whatever is not eaten is dried up and then they chop it up and let it fall to the ground. So eventually it's going to, in effect, be buried. And uh, you can, you do have dispensations or astronism to be buried if you die in a country with no vultures. So... 
for example, <laughs> Sri Lanka doesn't have vultures and there is a Zoroastrian cemetery there. I've been to it <laughs> because, you know, it's not always, there aren't always vultures around when you need them. If I die tomorrow, right. there are no vultures in South America. So um, I'm out of luck. <laughs> um, you just can't be cremated. That is against the uh, teaching. But oh, right. uh, at the Dungarwadi, when you come back from the Dungarwadi, so you're supposed to, you can go to the Dungarwadi just to walk around if you're Parsi. Non-Parsis cannot go, but if you're Parsi, you can go. And it's actually a really gorgeous place. Um, it's uh, one of the most beautiful places in Bombay. It's this really beautiful garden there. And the Agyari, the fire temple that is at the Dungarwadi is uh, my favorite in uh, fire temple of all. Um, the temple itself inside is very Spartan as they usually are, but the gardens are just extraordinary. Would I be allowed to go if I say I'm from Iran? Inside? Probably not. Uh, um, I think that you would, I, yeah, no, not because you would need to be both Zoroastrian and have had your Naujot. I think we could, your Naujot, which is like the initiation ceremony into Zoroastrianism. Anyway, I, I went in there and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And when you leave the Dungarwadi, you're supposed to, for example, have specific clothes that you only wear at the Dungarwadi. And as soon as you come home, you are you are supposed to shower, wash your hair. Um, and I entered the, I was living in a Parsi hostel and I entered the hostel and they basically, they didn't want me to enter my bedroom because I had come from the Dungarwadi and they marched me into the shower room with all my clothes on, huh. <laughs> including my shoes and my handbag. They just like shoved me in there and closed the door. Yeah. I didn't even have a towel. <laughs> and I had to like get completely no. soaked <laughs> before I was allowed to go into my bedroom what? because the, it's polluting being among the dead. And you don't go anywhere near any actual dead bodies when you're at the Dungarwadi, you know. You, um, and I would say that of places in Bombay, it's probably one of the cleanest places. <laughs> you know, Bombay is an absolutely filthy city. So it's right. entirely, this was a way too long digression, <laughs> but it's entirely symbolic. Right. The, the cleanliness and hygiene thing is completely mm. symbolic. It's not, there's no practical... Yeah. Um, you know, uh, repercussions to wearing a headscarf or not. And um, when you... Yeah, there's nothing practical with religion yeah. in general. When you so reach the... Um, um, at many of the fire temples, they have like a basket with spare scarves and little caps at the entrance. So if you forgot right. your, your headgear, you can just stick one on. And those have been worn by everybody, so they're full of dandruff and whatever. <laughs> and... <laughs> And also, I've seen men just take out a handkerchief and just like put it over their ball patch because they forgot their little cap. Oh. Um, it's completely just uh, hmm. gestural. Should we should we talk about the opposition groups? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. I I don't often get to talk about this. So I got no, a little carried but away. But I want I actually want to learn more about this. I should. Would you be interested in coming on Secular Jihadists and talking about it? I don't think I'm a very good person. I mean, I would love to go on your podcast, um, but I don't think I'm a very good person to talk about 
Um, but that so was great. You no, you just no. Why not? You just <laughs> had so many interesting stories. Um, I would come on if you'd let me come on with somebody else. Then okay. I would do that, and okay, okay. I do know a few people who would be really good. Oh, perfect. Um, okay. okay. So good. I I would come on as a kind of secondary guest with somebody who is more knowledgeable because because my parents died when I was quite young, oh. so I grew up mostly. After I left Pakistan, I grew up mostly in the UK, and I grew up with relatives and in foster care. Um, so I did not have a very intense Parsi upbringing. Hmm. Um, so, but I know plenty of people who did have a totally immersive, <laughs> completely Parsi and Zoroastrian life, and I can I happily come on and bring one of them. Right, that would be interesting. All right, but so. Yeah, Let's go back to the opposition in in Iran. Yeah, because um, I give you the very simplistic version of it. The 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 what's happening right now is more complicated than that. And I don't. Do you want me to explain yes, a little bit more? Yes. Okay. Right. So just to give you a full list of different um, groups of people that are against the Islamic Republic of Iran and have some level of organization. Um. The the main the most organized and the well funded one, which is also the least popular one, is the MEK, the Mujahideen Khalq. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of them? Yes. So these yeah. are they are anti governmental but a religious group, Islamic group. They, they, they are you know this is communism and Islam having a baby. Uh -huh. It will end, oh, it ends up. In, <laughs> 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 it ends up at Mek So basically, two ugly. Yeah. So it's very, it's toxic. It's a it's a cult. It's a it's a terrorist organization that only have been removed. I think just recently has been removed um, from the list of terrorist organizations in the world by Europe and United States just because they are so anti the Islamic Republic of Iran. So I think there's a bias there because they are a terrorist group. They have killed a lot of innocent people. They have a cult of people that burn themselves alive for, you know, I ha I remember as a kid and seeing them on the news burning themselves alive. These are the people that are in there have been, were complete brainwashed in such, a, it's in such a scary way. Like if you watch documentaries on them, it's scary. It's really scary. It's a very scary, uh, ugly cult. Um, and they are they, but the thing is that uh, they get a lot of funding from Saudi. You used to get a lot of support from Saddam, but now they get their funding from uh, Saudi Arabia and United States. And I don't know why you know they 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 get funding. Given that anybody with just the smallest amount of research could tell that these are these people are hated by almost everybody in Iran. Uh, their support is very, very small. Uh, both the religious people in Iran and the nationalist people in Iran, they all hate them. No, people, especially, people keep reminding any, everybody that they took the side of Saddam against Iran. They killed a lot of civilians. You know, one thing you could do, by the way, anti, if I haven't made that clear, anti-Arab racism is very common in Iran, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually... Mm -hmm. It's still it's it's a little bit less than before, well, but when I was there, it was it was weird if you're not anti-Arab, you know, anti-Arab. 
years, right? Now it's a little bit less common than before, but it's still extremely uh, more, you know, it's still majority of people are anti-Arab racist, right? Uh, but less than before, right? So to to be funded by Saddam or Saudi Arabia is the most, is the fastest way that you could lose support among the Iranian people. Mm. Um, so, so the MEK is, is completely useless. Their 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 leader is Maryam Rajavi. She's she's a egomaniac. Anyways, um, and yeah, they are they are religious as well. So then you have the monarchists, the people that want Iran to go back to its monarchy day. Um, right now, they're supporting Reza Pahlavi, um, hoping one day he could go back and bring the uh, you know the Pahlavi regime back. A lot of people um, think that this is the strongest opposition group, especially after the protests in Iran, the recent protests in Iran. A lot of the chants seem to suggest some level of support for them, you know, like Reza Shah, Ruhat Shah, like they said stuff that was pro-Pahlavi regime, right? And nobody said, like there was not a single protest that was, uh, mentioned the MEK, uh, uh, there, there's not, not a single chance, right? But you can see a lot of chance. There, there are a lot of chance in the in the protests that were against both the reformers and the hardliners, right? Anything all uh, the government that was very common in the chance. There were some anti-religious ones, some directed um, at Khamenei himself, which was very ballsy. Um, um, and a few that were pro pro Pahlavi. Pahlavi is the uh, is the Pahlavi is, is the is the dynasty that was in um, ruling Iran right before the Islamic Revolution of 1979. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you have the secular Democrats. It, uh, um, which can are, I just in, interject a little right. bit because it's extraordinary that anybody would be supporting. Um, the reign of the Shah, since it's because the it's partly because the Shah was so that regime was so extraordinarily corrupt that the Islamists were able to to come into power in the first place. Right, but you have to understand that people have a, a glorified, romanticized view of the past, with especially with this government in power, right? So just like the Zoroastrian, the the new Zoroastrian, I'm going to call them new Zoroastrians. There's new Zoroastrians in Iran, the converts from Islam to Zoroastrians. They have this view that uh, Iran before the Arab invasion was pretty much utopia. They have this <laughs> right. They have this idea that it was the best thing ever. Like and the I mean the. The, the the way they glorify the way they romanticize how amazing everything was is such an exaggeration, uh, and I feel that they say they're doing the same thing now with uh, how everything was great with during Shah's time, mm-hmm. right? So because because people hate when you when you hate what you have right now so much, then whatever was before it becomes the best thing ever, mm-hmm. right? So they do that. So they, yeah. So they want to go back to that because I mean, they most of the most of the people that are protesting, they weren't alive uh, then, right? So they only get told what everything, how great everything was, from you know, from people that missed the good old days where they could be free, they could have a 
go to the beach with bikinis, right? Like, um, and you know, I mean, that the Shah was a dictator, and he he tortured his the people that were against him, right? But it was still not to the level of what the mullahs mm-hmm. are doing, right? So, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't a brutal dictator. He was a brutal dictator, um, but but most people didn't experience his wrath, right? You had to be a political activist to be able to experience that you're living under a dictatorship, right? But when it when it comes to living under the Islamic Republic, most people have experienced the feeling of living under a tyranny right now. You know what I mean? Like everybody has experienced what it like what it's like not to have freedom if you're living in Iran. But if you lived under Shah, you, ha- you would only be reminded that you're not free if you were taking a direct you know action right. against the Shah. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? So so the yeah, so it's an insane other level. Um, so and then you had the ethno-nationalists, but uh, none of these are. I think that the ones that I mentioned so far are actually a threat to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, the MEK is a joke. The monarchists have never been organized. Have never had any serious uh, like they they keep they're all they put all their hopes and dreams into this one guy, the son of the former king. Uh, Rez, this Reza Pahlavi, right? And he himself is against monarchy. So so all their hopes and dreams are um you know I don't I don't even I don't know where they're what they're gonna do. I don't think the monarchists have any any hope. They're so insignificant. Um you have the secular democrats which is basically us, I guess, right? Um, they are not that big. They don't they don't have any organized political group you have some groups come and go. Uh, they get organized for a while. They pass on some memos and have some board meetings, and then they come. Like right now, I think the most popular one is Farish Gad, but they they have a lot of people that are against them. Even among the people that are for secularism and democra- d- democracy, um, there's a lot of internal drama with, within the opposition group, which I could get into. Um, but the the greatest uh, threat to the Islamic Republic of Iran is the ethnic minority groups, the ones that are fighting for autonomy, mm. right? So you have the Kurds, the Azeris, and the Arabs in Khuzestan, and you have Sistan, Baluchistan. They all are hoping that uh, they all are either fighting for autonomy or full-on independence from Iran, right? Mm. And they, they, any form of dissent uh, within Iran, at some point, if it gets some momentum, it will get picked up by these groups for their own agenda of, of independence, right? Um, so that's the, uh, the, so... See, whenever whenever there's a new round of protests happening in Iran, at first it's not about human rights or any anti-religious um, movement, right? At first it's about just the economy. High prices, um, low wages, you know, stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Because... Because the government wants to at least pretend that it allows people to that kind to have that kind of a protest. So the people that have human rights, you know, agenda and they're like worried about that, 
if they just start a protest like that, they're just going to get destroyed right from the beginning, right? So they usually don't come out until the econ- the people with economic grievances, when they get some momentum, then they start joining the crowd, the people that have other um, you know, grievances, right? They're like, okay, we can now get away with having a few chants about our issues under the cover of so many people in the streets, right? Mm. But this is exactly how the the Kurdish groups or the Azeri groups or the ethnic minority, other ethnic minority groups, they do the same thing. Whenever the protests start getting a certain amount of momentum, they're like, this is our shot. This is our chance, right? And we could like do get like and and this is this is a, the the problem with this is that a lot of Iranians, the Parsi Iranians, right, the ones that are not part of the ethnic minority, they the ones that are against the government, as I mentioned, they're also the nationalistic types, mm. right? So when they see there's that there are some group of people that are wanting to cut uh, pieces from their beloved country. They're like not not in my name. Like no no fucking way you get to do that. Like so there. So now this is this is the source of the internal struggle within Iran, right? Because a lot of people want this government to go, but they don't want Iran to be cut into pieces, mm. right? So they don't want to be providing excuses or cover for a bunch of people that are going to take that might want Kurdish independence or Azeri independence or Sistan Baluchistan independence or get the Arabs in Khuzestan get, get, get in, giving them any legitimacy, right? So, but then there are some people that don't think, well, no, the, we should listen to these ethnic minorities because the, this government has wronged them so much. So we should give them more rights. We should we should pay attention to them. And a lot of people are like, no, fuck that. We shouldn't give pay any attention to them because these people's only agenda is to get separated from Iran. So now you have the first internal struggle within the opposition group that that this this internal struggle has become so strong that there are some people within the within this group that are now supporting the Islamic Republic of Iran. Right? You get the you get some people that are anti-Islam and they hate Islam and they hate this government with passion, but they're defending it because they say I, that they love Iran so much that if it takes this government to keep it together, I'll support this government. Right. right? So... Then, then you have another group of nationalist people that are against this government that they think that foreign powers are trying to intervene in a way that if they, they look at the history of Iran, like the Mossadegh, uh, when he was, um, you know, when the CIA came in, in and started a coup and removed him from power, right? Uh, and other examples like with, with, the, with the Russians and with the British. And they say, they, they come up with examples and they say like, look, in these foreign, the people that come to quote unquote help us, right? Um, they're not here to help us. They're just here to make sure that they're, uh, their uh, their resources or their agenda is, you know, they have their own priorities. They don't care about the Iranian people, right? And they think that the you know if US comes and supports any kind of protest and stuff, it's for something else. And it's gonna, and they're like, look, 
I don't like this government. I, I'm not, by the way, I'm not taking a side right now. I'm mm-hmm. just giving you a summary yep, of sure. the views right now. Right? They say like, yeah, I hate this government. I want them gone. But look what happened to Iraq when Saddam was removed. Right? Look what happened in Syria. Look what happened in to Libya. Mm. Mm. Right? They're like, we're going to have an internal war, civil war for, for, for years, and there's going to be bloodshed. It's not going to be like, hey, let's remove this government, and all of a sudden we have a new government, and we're like, yay, great job, let's go now live peacefully. If you remove this government, it's going to be chaos for years, right? I mean, if, think about it. Like This government is in Iran is, hasn't been... It's been the least popular it ever has since the revolution, right? But even though it doesn't enjoy as much of popularity as it used to enjoy, it still at least at least has ten million supporters, right? What's 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 the at population least. of Iran? I think it's seventy million right now. Let me see, Iran population. I think it's eighty-one. Jesus, when I left it, it was sixty-two. Mm, it's. What the hell? That's gone so fast. Wow, that's, um, that's yeah, double, double so Argentina. Like double Argentina, yeah. I thought it was like 75 something, but it's 81. Okay. So, but, but the latest estimates that I've heard, and these estimates are not reliable, okay? Mm-hmm. The reason why these estimates are not reliable is because we don't have any reliable polling in Iran, right? But... But the most conservative estimates right now are at least 10 million supporters, right? Mm. And these include people that will die for Khamenei. Mm. Yeah. Right? And you have to add on top of that the people that would die Khamenei outside of Iran. Mm. Like people from Hezbollah or Hashtashami, they will come back to Iran if, they, if, they, if they're called upon. I mean, they will come to Iran, right? Right. Um, so... I mean, we have to remember, this is a government that defeated ISIS in places where the United States couldn't because of the influence they have on the ground. And ISIS had guns and weapons. The protesters don't have any of that, right? But I'm I'm just saying that all these millions of people, it's not like you could just replace the government with a secular one and these people are just going to sit home and be like, oh, I guess we have a secular government now, okay. Right. Obviously, they're going to be as passionate as these protesters are against this government. I think the protesters against the secular government will be even more passionate because most of these people that are coming into the streets against the Islamic Republic of Iran, they're not interested in martyrdom. Right. Yeah. They might, they will, they will be happy. They will, they properly prefer, they're trying to avoid dying or avoid even going to prison. They're, the, the counter protesters to a secular democratic government of Iran, there will be people that are like, yeah, finally I get to die, right? So they will be pas- more passionate, um, pro- you know, counter. Like, I'm just saying it, it's not going to be a peaceful process of just handing over the government to a new one just because of some protests in the streets, right? So they're, they're, these people are like, I don't like this government, but I'll take this government over 10 years of internal civil war, right? And But then there's these other people are like, no, fuck you. If you are supporting this government, you're betraying this country. Uh, you're, if you're not 
against this government. You're a puppet of this government. You you are. They keep accusing, like what right now. If you look at in the on Twitter and among the opposition groups, they're accusing each each other of being agents of the Islamic Republic, left and right. Uh-huh. right? <laughs> like everybody is accusing someone else of being an agent of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Right? As soon as there's some form of disagreement. Oh, you must be paid. How much does the Islamic Republic of Iran pay you? Right? Mm. It's I keep telling them like this. You guys sound like the. I tell them that you guys sound like the how as the Islamic Republic keeps accusing everybody of being an agent of the Zionist regime. You guys are just sound like the Islamic Republic now by by your just left and right accusing. You know how in the United States right now everybody just be, keeps being accused of being a racist as yes, soon as they say something. Yes, I was exactly thinking of that little, parallel as you were saying this. Yeah. So the so the Iran so the so okay so the Islamic Republic's version of that is accusing everybody of being a Zionist uh, agent, and the opposition's. Uh, version of that is accusing everybody of being a puppet of uh, an agent of the Islamic Republic, right? So you you mentioned Masi Ali Najad, right? Yes. Right? So most people in the opposition actually hate her now. Mm, why? Because they think she's an agent of the Islamic Republic of Iran. How can she be an agent of the Islamic Republic of Iran when she's a campaigner against hijab? <laughs> she, that makes exactly. no sense. Okay, well, this is how they. This is how a lot of people think. Okay, and I know a lot of people. So I defended Messi on our Iranian podcast, and now because I defended Messi Ali Najad, a lot of people think I'm an agent of the Islamic Republic of Iran, right? So then the, the their their logic is this is their logic, okay? And even people within the my own co-host on my podcast, this is how they think that somebody the all the uh, all the girls that took off women, I should say. Every time I say girls, somebody get upset. All the women that took off their hijab and put them on their sick, right, to protest mm-hmm. the mandatory hijab laws, they're actually agents of the Islamic Republic, right? They're trying. They their understanding. The, the these opposition group is saying is that they're trying to distract you from the real problem. The real problem is not hijab. The real problem is the Islamic Republic. And they're just putting these women in front of you to distract you from the source of all the problems, right? They say that at some point, like they're making, they're trying to, again, this is a conspiracy level, conspiracy theory. Like this, this is, I keep telling them that you guys are sounding like the 9-11 troopers. Um, but I'm say, they, they're saying that uh, Masih Halinejad and the, the woman that took off their hijab, they're controlled opposition. And at some point, this government is going to give, um, make hijab, um, you know, not mandatory anymore. And at that point, all the you know, everybody that is against this government has put all their eggs in their anti-hijab um, position. And once they give that to you, then they you have nothing else to say. Uh, and they say this is a game the government is playing to to stay in power longer. They say everybody should stop fo- talking about hijab and they should just focus on removing this government. That's the only thing we should be focusing on. And this whole hijab talk is the government's in- invention. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's actually one of the most popular opini- opinions right now 
within the opposition movement. That sounds completely absurd. And <laughs> I, I, I totally reject it as a view. Um, yeah. And I certainly don't think that that is what the girls of Revolution Street, I think, they are yes. calling themselves girls, you see, yes. not women. Um, girls of Revolution Street. See, that's why Street. I translated to girls, because the Persian version of it, is, it says girls in it. So whenever I say the girls and people are like, oh, I mean, you're being so disrespectful. These people are grown women. Why are you calling it girls? I'm just translating the Persian version of it, okay? Well, I always so, call, I always call women girls as well. And okay. uh, I'm always very happy. Well, you know, I'm 50. So I'm. if anybody's going to call me a girl, I'm extremely happy. Um, yeah. You know, I've reached the age at which I'm really happy if someone says, young girl. I'm like, thank you so much. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I think that I can see a small amount of sense in this, small amount, mm-hmm. in that following what's happening in Saudi Arabia, um, I see people, for example, celebrating the fact that Saudi women are now allowed to drive. Right. And it's such a tiny little tidbit, you know, that has been like a little kind of... Um, I, okay, I see I mean, your it's point, Im- it's, Im- it's, it's important. So it's, it's important that Saudi women can drive. It's important in itself, and no, it's a victory. But can I tell you why? It's, I, so, I very much agree with you that, that giving, letting Saudi women drive but it's was, not, was it's, only a PR move and nothing else. I can see a little bit of truth in that, a sort of small kernel, because that act was very tokenistic. And... Um, People are now describing, you know, the Saudi prince as a reformer. And of course, he is not a reformer. Um, Saudi still have a, has a system of guardianship. They are executing people left, right and center for things that should not be crimes at all, let alone capital offenses. Yes. And the women who campaigned for women to be allowed to drive are still in prison and are being tortured in prison. So, uh, you know, he's made it legal for women to drive in Saudi, but the women who campaigned for this are still in rotting in Saudi prison. So, right. you know, I, I can see how a government might cynically, um, you know, might make hijab voluntary, for example, as a cynical kind of token. Um, right. I can see how that could happen. So we shouldn't, but that doesn't mean we should become conspiracy theorists who think that anti-hijab campaigners are in the pay of the government. That's a step too far. We should just not be content with just hijab becoming voluntary, but we should see that that as one of many things that we want to have happen. Sorry, go ahead, Armin. I'm just going to use your analogy to actually say why it's not like Saudi Arabia, right? Mm -hmm. Because... um, I completely agree that, you know, that's just a token just for them to be able to stay in power while they commit more human rights abuses. But we what we could see that that's the game Ben Salman is playing. But we know in Saudi Arabia, we're not accusing the women that were fighting for women to be able to drive to that that, that they're play, that they were in on side of Ben Salman. We're not we 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 admire those women and we we blame Ben Salman. Yeah. What these conspiracy theorists are doing, it would be the equivalent of blaming those women rights activists, because I if the Islamic Republic uses this as a game to stay in power longer or to just you know manipulate people, 
We would blame the Islamic Republic for doing that, but we shouldn't blame people like Masih Alinejad for fighting for women's rights, right? So, um, so it's not the same because it would be the same if if they were only pointing out to the Islamic Republic using this as a game, but they're not. They're also pointing to the activists, right? Right, which is which right. is crazy. Yeah, and they have a lot of like. Um, I mean, so quote unquote evidence for like you know for what they're saying. Like every time one of these um, women of the you know the girls of the Dochteran uh, one of the the women that took off their hijab, when they one of them got out and made it to Canada, and they're like, see, this was all for her to be able to get claim refugee status in, in Canada, to be able to get away. And how did she get away if she was not in the pocket of the Islamic Republic? Because the Islamic Republic wouldn't have let her. Like, like, well, well she escaped from the from from the you know Iran Turkey border. Like, well, then how did she like? They look at the how did she get this stamp? Like, they keep trying to look at ways to prove that these women are supported by the Islamic Republic. But this is why I also think that the this the so-called the secular democrats are not a serious opposition to the Islamic Republic either because they have such inter very strong internal divisions, right? So I just identify like three of these divisions. One of them is for the people uh, among the people that do support one secular democracy but they uh, they don't want a civil war. Mm. Um, they point to Iraq, Syria, and Libya and what happened to them after they had a regime change. Then there's another group of people that uh, want secular democracy, but um, they don't want um, any of these uh, ethnic minority groups to be able to cut Iran into pieces. Uh, you have the people that uh, then you have the people that this regime should be removed for. Any should be in any with any pos, in any possible way, even if they have to make a deal with the devil. Some, I, I talk to people that say, so what if there's a 20, 20 year civil war? Uh, anything is worth getting rid of this regime. And like, what if your own parents die in a civil war? They say like it's a it's a it's a worthy sacrifice. They hate this government so much that they say if it ends up in a twenty year civil war, civil war and a lot of bloodshed it will be better than having these mullahs in power. So there is also that point of view. And then within the people that do believe that, do want to remove this government by any means necessary, there's still some, a lot of internal fights over any form of disagreement will get you at the accusation that you're an agent of the Islamic Republic. So that's why I think all these opposition groups, unfortunately, they're not very united. Um, they um, and they're they're not organized. They don't have any serious leadership, and and that's why I think like um, they're not. None of them are a major threat to the Islamic Republic. So um, I mean, again, this this yeah, oh, Armin. Um, I I want to getting away from the kind of organized opposition groups. Um, I want to ask you more about the sort of grassroots opposition to to Islam, to extremist forms of Islam, to theocracy, um, which is some of what I am following on Twitter and mm. the anti-hijab protests, the people burning the Quran, the people showing their atheist republic signs from within Iran. <laughs> um, 
the right. people who are singing and dancing in public and things of that kind. Mm. I would like to know um, how many of those people are there? How dangerous is what they are doing? So how dangerous is opposition to this form of Islam within Iran? And also, mm. what can we do to support them uh, from outside Iran? Okay, so the problem is that we don't know. Like I mentioned, there's so many different uh, groups. And if each one of these groups claims that they are the majority. I don't even mean the groups, but I'm just thinking about individuals yeah. who are. Yeah, but the, I'm, mm. I'm not talking about organized groups. I'm talking about mm. views. Okay. Right? The people with certain views, right? So, like the most to the the hijab taking off, uh, women dancing in the street videos mm -hmm. are the most popular ones to a Western audience, mm. right? Yeah. Um, within the uh, within the anti-government people within Iran, they 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 there's a mixed reception to them. Mm -hmm. Right, even the people that are anti-Islam, anti-government, anti-Islam, and and I also already told you why, right? So, um, but they are very, but they get a lot of more. They re, they are more well received among non-Iranians than Iranians. Within Iranians, and I'm only talking about Iranians that are against the government, right? Within the Iranians that are against the government, there's a there's mixed reception, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Um, so I'm, I'm just telling you what the truth is. With it, for the, the Quran burning one, uh, the people that support that uh, are a, a minority. Even some atheists in Iran are against that. But the people that um, do support it are very passionate about mm. it, right? Mm. Um, and the fact that it's happening at all, it's, it's unbelievable. Right, that you have people in Iran burning the Quran. Yeah. Right, the singing and dancing ones is very, uh, is is very heartwarming. Like you can see people defying the government and just singing and dancing in the street, and just so beautiful to watch. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. and the fact that just the, the, the mere singing and dancing, it's is an act of defiance, is just so poetic. Yeah. Right. So. It just puts the puts gives you the perception of how anti fun, how anti pleasure could you be that something this be beautiful could be illegal, yeah. right? Um, and yeah, I mean these people are risking. Some of them are, now that it's more and more of it is happening. Some of them are relying on, you know, the the safety of large numbers, right? But I mean, a lot, a lot of these women that took off their hijab, they originally got twenty-year prison sentences. So it was, it is. I mean, you have you have no idea what you might get. Like your experience might vary, depends on who arrested you, what judge you get. So it's very random on what the consequences are might end up being. Um, that's why you are, yes, you are taking a huge risk when you're doing this, mm. right? So to me, these people are very brave. And it's sad to me to see that women that, you know, took off their hijab in public to stand for women's rights at a huge risk to their own safety and security are getting so much accusation now from the people that are supposed to be on their side. What I am right? 
So it's very sad for me. To what I do see in the videos, though, is uh, in some of the videos. Um, so I've been following the hashtag that is my camera is my weapon. Right. And um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of support. So you can see very often people oh, yeah. harassing the women, even police and um, mullahs and things harassing them, and many ordinary passers-by offering support, um, which is really heartening to me. So I'm just contrasting this with um, one, I, I mean, this is a couple of years ago now, um, but contrasting this with one really extreme example, which is... Um, in Pakistan, I think that you would not get that left would not get support of that kind. In Pakistan, even as a woman, if, even if you're just walking in certain streets at certain times, that's considered sexually provocative. Even if you were dressed very modestly and in hijab, um, just the fact that you're out there in public and um, right. there isn't. I mean, the feeling, the atmosphere that of what I'm seeing there is very different. I mean, in Pakistan, they. Um, uh, Mashal Khan, the student activist who was not even atheist, but who was kind of a liberal secularist, who had a more kind of gentler, kind, kinder interpretation of Islam, and he was beaten to death on campus by his fellow students in broad daylight. And that I cannot imagine mm. happening in Iran. I feel that there is a stronger groundswell of opposition to that or um but but this this uh, this kind of opposition has been there for for the past yeah, 40 yeah. years i mean for i mean all i've i lived in iran for for you know 20 20 years and all my childhood i remember people saying yeah any day now this government is gone mm. and i like yeah, it's been 40 years of any mm-hmm. day now mm-hmm. right so the 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 thing is when i when i'm talking about the opposition within you know the internal differences between the opposition group all of these opposition groups would be are agree that mandatory hijab is bullshit right and they would all be in supportive of if a woman is has her hijab off and this religious police comes and tells you to put it back on or they try to arrest you, if somebody is trying to support the woman against the officer, all of these people would agree that that person is a hero, mm-hmm. right? So that's not the disagreement. Um, and they also support a lot of these women that, you know, they want people to be able to wear whatever they want. Um, they want, they support women that are fighting for their freedom and, you know, they want that, they want, they support people that think religion shouldn't be in government. But where the conspiracy theories come is that a certain group of these women have been put in to take advantage of this, uh, of the popularity of this movement to, to direct the attention of people in some other way, right? So when I say that, there, which which I don't believe, but this is what they think. But when I say there is internal, there is some differences between the opposition group. I'm not su- I'm not suggesting that um, what you what you're seeing is not common, right? Like, let me tell you how how bad it was getting. Like how common the the views that you that gives you hope. Um, 
this is it. I tell people the story. When my when my mom was still alive, she went in. She went. She went to a bank in Tehran, right? And there was this woman in full chador, right? So if you have a full chador on, that means that you're not you're religious. You're not just putting the hijab just because mm-hmm. it's law. You're you're religious. You're take you're taking this way seriously, right? So you could tell by what people wear, what how religious they are, mm-hmm. right? So um, this chadari woman was trying to get the attention of one the tellers, the, the people that um, you know, any of the staff working at the bank, right? And it, she kept on talking to to them, and nobody was paying attention to her, right? And at some point, my mom just grabs her hand. The religious woman goes to one of the staff and she's like, can you please answer her question? And the guy just looks at her like in a in a rude way. And then she, she they finally take care of what she needs. And then she goes. And then when she leaves, my mom asks them, why, why, why are you guys so rude to her? Uh, and they all unanimously agree that these religious people have ruined the country. Why should we serve them? Mm-hmm. Right. So this was the common view of the people working in Upper Tehran in, in you know in, at a bank. And again, Upper Tehran does not represent the entire country. Uh, it's a little bit more liberal there, but people don't expect that that you get discriminated against for being religious in Tehran. Like that's not something mm, people mm. expect, right? Uh, but you do, right? Like you people think like people hate on you for being religious, right? Uh, so, and, and more more extreme versions of this uh, is that even just just last week, one of the uh, hashtags people were using on Twitter in Iran was Ahun Koshi, uh, which means killing mullahs. Mm. And the, the, yeah, so there was one Ahun, there was one mullah religious leader that was killed, um, and people were really happy about it because you're like finally we will let me tell you how bad this is there was another hashtag people were using was saying uh a mullah for every tree mm. uh which which this meant that whenever the day that we remove this government there would be a mullah hanging from every tree there was a poll on Twitter to to discuss whether when we when they eventually get rid of this government should they kill all the mullahs and their family or just the mullahs and let their families Why? go. So, yeah. So I mean, you have the diversity of opinions is a, is huge. Some people are saying the, the, some people were being tolerant. Some people are saying no. Let's just kill the top mullahs, and the rest of the mullahs go to um, forced labor forever. Because they think that these religious leaders, they don't, they've been, they've been, all their income has been for ta- from taxpayer money. They don't contribute anything to society. They just take from society. So when, it, when we take over from the government, they have to be put into mandatory labor to pay back the, the society from all the money that they took away. So they basically are supporting of, um, you know, labor camps for mullahs when they take over the government. So, and again, I'm not saying this is the majority view, but these are the common views, but not majority views. But I'm just saying the diversity of opinion is huge. And, you know, what the experience 
you get from what's happening in Iran, it really depends on who you're following, right? Like if you, if, if I only, um, I mean, me, to me, Masi Halinejad is a hero. And whenever I say that, people accuse me of being an agent <laughs> of the Islamic Republic, which is, yeah, which which is bizarre. But, but I don't only follow Masi Halinejad because if I only follow that Masi Halinejad, I would think that, wow, this is, 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 I would think the same thing that my parents used to think any day now, right? But but if you if you follow like I follow other sources as well if if I follow only uh, sources that support the government if I didn't follow anybody else I, the impression I would get is that this this government is um, unbeatable <laughs> right like there's God himself could not <laughs> topple this government if I only if you know so you you keep getting uh, biased views. And what to believe and to, is is really difficult right now because you don't have really reliable data. You only have people recording their personal experiences, people giving their own biased opinions, right? And you have to put all of them together to get some some view. But it's always obviously not going to be a a, a a view as clear as it, it would have been if you had actually people be able to go collect data, you know, right. using yes, scientifically proven methods, right? So you just have to, so you just have to, it's a guessing game, but, but again, you have to follow the people that you don't like as well to be able to get a better understanding of what's going on. So um, Armin, um, I'm conscious that your time is precious um, no, thank you. <laughs> no, but this was fun. It's been, no, it's no, been no. wonderful, I, but I, I want to end by talking about what people outside Iran should best do mm-hmm. to support um, those who I would most like to support, which is atheists and secularists within Iran and people who are campaigning for human rights, people who are campaigning, right. people like Masi Alinejad and people who are campaigning against coerced hijab people who are campaigning for gender equality, um, people who are campaigning for liberalism in every way. So I would like to see um, safety for atheists, apostates, religious minorities, gay men, etc. What is the best way to support that groundswell of movement towards something that is human rights based what is the best way to support universal liberal humanism in iran right before i answer that i have to say when you mentioned regarding my time i actually this is the most fun i have uh, so you know talking about these things and i don't get to talk about these things most people just ask me about uh, islam and you know religion and atheism which is fun but i don't get to talk about you know, politics in the Middle East that much when I get invited on shows, which is one of my favorite topics. So to be able to spend this time talking to you about this, uh, I, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. So thank you so much for no, it's letting been, me do it. It's been my absolute pleasure. Right. So with regards to how to help, um, honestly, the, a lot of people dismiss or make fun of how important it is to bring more attention to whenever um, human rights 
violations occur or whenever somebody pushes back and has any measure of success against people that are abusing human rights, people think like, well, I'm, I'm sitting here over in Vancouver or I don't know, in Argentina or somewhere else. And uh, what can I do? Right. Mm. But just the mere sharing of the story or telling people about it does make a difference. People, a lot of people make fun of, you know, uh, campaigns or hashtag campaigns or people asking for signatures and stuff and thinking like when when the when has that made any difference and when people ask that are like well i have examples for you and there are many there are many times that ha- that has made a difference because uh you know the canadian uh, european american you know mexican or whatever politicians they don't they don't take actions unless they see a certain demand for it right mm. so so, for example, when, when it came to Saudi Arabia, you know, when all the human rights abuses that they commit, we try, when we try to bring government attention to pressure Saudi Arabia, it didn't get much, it didn't get anywhere that, you know, that much. Uh, even, you know, Canada was supporting Saudi Arabia, United States was. But it took the, the killing of Khashoggi because, like, apparently thousands of Yemeni children dying by the hands of Ben Salman it's not enough for Canada to break ties with Saudi Arabia, but killing one reporter that has a U.S. residentship is enough to be like, okay, you now you cross the line. But, but the fact is that even though it's, it's, it, it was annoying to me that that's what it took for them to, to, to break ties with Saudi Arabia, but at least it shows that it take, there's something that put pressure on Saudi Arabia. Like people's opinions does make governments, you know, when, when, when more, if more people talk about human rights violation by country, if more people talk about it, more media, these media organizations, they have, they have their eye on what people are talking Mm. about. They have, Mm. they have a lot of software keeping track on these things. And when they see a topic is more popular, they will cover it in the media. And when politicians see that the topic is being covered by media, they get the impression that this is what people care about. And when people, when being anti-Saudi becomes trending, then you get a government like Canada to completely break ties with Saudi Arabia, right? So it's, it, it saddens me that it took Khashoggi and not the thousands of in, uh, innocent Yemeni children, but, but to me it shows that if, that's more on the people than the government because the people didn't care about their children. The people cared about the Khashoggi story was more popular, right? But it showed that if you could get people talking about this, uh, foreign governments do put pressure on a country like Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia did feel the pressure. A A country like Saudi Arabia does, we have seen some people, uh, you know, get not getting executed in Iran because of government pressure. That we do see these these governments sometimes being forced to make major changes in the the way they treat their own people because of international pressure. Um, and again, and every time they make these changes, they shouldn't be congratulated for it because they made it because of the pressure. But it should encourage us to increase the pressure. Right. Even just recently, I think Brunei. Push uh, moved back a little bit on their stoning to death of um, 
the LGBT just recently, they just moved back a little bit because of the intense pressure. Yes. I wish we could put the same amount of pressure on Iran and Saudi Arabia and any other country that violates human rights in that way. We, we, we can't, but we should try, right? We should try to get that kind of reaction. So just if you want to help, you know, just just talk about it. And if you have a platform, just bring i mean what you're doing is great so you know you 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 you're talking about these topics on your podcast if you have a blog if you have a youtube channel you know invite people there talk about these topics bring attention to human rights violations and if you can't if you don't have a platform then just share other people's platform you know share other people's content especially if you want to really help um uh, support the independent content creators that are focused on these things. Like share this podcast, uh, you know, because these are the people that are more in direct communication of the communities that are being influenced by, uh, by such measures. So, and, and, you know, independent content creators are more, usually more direct, um, less concerned about PC culture and stuff like that. So support them if you can, by sharing their content. Yeah, absolutely. So keep raising awareness. Thank you, Armin. You've been wonderful. This has been very interesting, depressing, (laughs) discouraging and animating uh, all at once. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. And I will put in the show notes links to the Atheist Republic, Secular Jihadist podcast, uh, Armin's book, and also... um, Links to some of the hashtag campaigns and to uh, Alina Masinijat. Massey Alinejat. And her book. And her book, The Wind in My Hair. Yeah, one of my my favorite books. Yes, it's not available uh, here in... uh, We can't have books shipped to Argentina and it's not available on Kindle, so I'm waiting to be able to read it. But... um, uh, What about Audible? um, um, there doesn't seem to be an audible version. I have also invited her to come on this podcast, there but is. she hasn't responded. I think she has a lot of um, a yeah, lot of requests. We, we got her on secular journey. Yeah, you 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 had a victory there. If you ever have a chance to speak to her, put in a good word because I would love to have her on. And uh, I think she's tired of. I I will, but the ever since we have her on, there were so many people asking yeah, me to imagine. ask her. <laughs> and now she doesn't check my messages anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, that's understandable. Yeah, only, anyway, everybody yeah. should support her and uh, in in any way they yeah. can, and uh, support Atheist Republic. And um, I think oh, that I feel you. that um, atheists within Muslim majority countries, in particular, and some other theocratic non. Muslim theocratic regimes also are some of the most endangered and most important people in the world. Um, And um, we, in the West, we are used to thinking of atheists as these kind of annoying um, online smart aleck guys. (laughs) But in most of the world, um, atheism is a... um, courageous and principled stance and atheists are an endangered minority. Uh, So we should be supporting them and supporting everybody who is fighting for human rights. Yeah, I mean, also, I I also support the annoying atheists as well, because... (laughs) No, the thing is that we don't don't want to claim that atheists are not 
are all good people. Mm. Like obviously atheists have their own fair share of assholes, right? Just like any other group. Of course. Um, the, the point is that we, even the, the we, we will defend the rights of atheists uh, because atheists was one of the most uh, discriminated against group of people uh, in, in the world, right? And you, I mean, even if you're an asshole atheist, you still don't deserve to be uh, oppressed because of your atheism, of right? So yeah. a lot of people are like, oh, atheists are like this, like that. Oh, I met an atheist. Some people say, oh, atheists are great people. And I was like, no, we are just like everybody else. We are good people and we are bad people. But the point that we're trying to make is not to say that we are better than you or we are superior in any way. But the point is we're trying to make is that we should be just treated the same as everybody else. Um, even the the good atheists or the bad atheists, it doesn't matter. They shouldn't be discriminated against because of their atheism, right? Um, and given that um, atheists are, I mean, I can't think of any other group of people that are, their mere existence is punishable by death in 13 mm, countries. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is which are which is atheist, right? And it's not fair because even though they're one of the most discriminated against group of people in the world, they're also one of the least protected group. Like they don't any amount of uh, oppression against them doesn't get as much attention as 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 other groups of people. If they were uh, Muslim or Christian or a Jew, Jew uh, Jewish, or you know, there's a lot of organizations or groups of people that would be there for them to support them. When it comes to atheists, there's not there's a huge gap. There's a huge gap between the level of oppression that they're facing and the the amount of pushback against the oppression. I think it's the lar- it's the largest gap that exists between the need and the and the supply of any amount of advocacy mm, group, right? Yes. And this is what Atheist Republic is trying to be. A- Atheist Republic is trying to become the uh, the advocacy um, that that the atheists need on a global scale. Yeah which does not exist um, at all, like compared to any other minority. Absolutely. So if you think, and just just to make it clear, we even have people that um, are Christian and Muslim that support Atheist Republic. If, um, we don't hold back our disagreements against religion. Like when even if Muslims support us, that doesn't mean that we're not going to, talk shit about islam we talk shit about islam but there are some people that are christian and muslim and they're like you know what i disagree with everything you have to say about christianity or islam but i support your your right to say it and i don't think the way atheists are treated around the world is right so i want to support atheist republic because i want to stand against that right so we even have get that kind of support people that recognize it's not okay to treat atheists this way yeah i think the global thing is also crucial so um uh, i don't want to get into this in great detail because um i want to keep the podcast to around two hours for technical reasons and also to make sure people don't uh, listen right to the end um but i um you know, I hear a lot of people saying, stay in your lane, look after, you know, your own country or things that are going on locally. But that is, first of all, it's just not the situation. We live in a global society now. Um, right. We we have, we influence each other. You know, what you write on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, uh, even it might not be you personally, but the way that it is shared um the things that you are sharing, what you are, the discourse that you are part of, that is a conversation that is global, that is potentially global. 
and we should raise our voices for good within that conversation. And as I said on the last podcast or the podcast before last, because I think um, uh, one more one podcast one more podcast afterwards will be released before this one comes out. But uh, on the podcast with Nicholas Christakis, I said that um, I'm a universal liberal humanist. And I used to think that it was the liberal, the humanist part that was the most important, but I increasingly feel that one of the most important things is the universalist thing. We are one human species. Um, wherever there are human rights abuses, it is your business and it is your responsibility um, to right. do what you can, even if that is just writing a tweet. Um, <laughs> you should raise your voice and signal boost those who are supporting human rights, um, which includes you, Armin. Yeah. So if you want to support us, you could go to atheistrepublic.com <laughs> to the, if you think that uh, we're doing anything valuable and you think if there's a more uh, need for advocacy, uh, we're actually partnering right now with a few uh, human rights groups to, um, they're advising us on how to, because we are, we are one of the largest, and um, we are the largest atheist group in the world. So, we want to make sure we do this right. So, we have recently just became a political movement, uh, and we're doing. Um, you know, we're not just online activity. We're scheduling and planning um, in the street protests uh, for um, to bring attention to certain blasphemers that are arrested or on death row in certain countries. So, if you want to support that atheistrepublic.com great thank you so much armin yeah no thank you thank you for having me my pleasure have a lovely week everyone you've been listening to two for tea the accompanying podcast for ario magazine ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.